0: J'ai fait Verdun, I did Verdun. Common statement by French veterans of the battle of Verdun. A mon fille, depuis que tes yeux sont fermés, les miens n'ont cessé déploré. To my son, Since your eyes were closed, mine have not ceased to cry. Memorial plaque cemented into the wall of Fort Vaux. Verdun. Hello, and welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast episode 14, Je Fais Verdun. This episode is dedicated to the soldier who features prominently on the photo used in the artwork for this podcast. The photo is one of the most famous ones to come out of the Battle of Verdun and captures the very moment a French soldier was hit and presumably killed. I do not know much else about the photo. I do not know the soldier's name nor his unit. I know he's French from his uniform and helmet and those of the rushing figures behind him. I believe that this soldier, whoever He may have been believed in what he was doing that day. I like to believe that he went into that assault across no man's land, believing that what he was doing was protecting his family, his hometown, his country, and his people. That soldier represents to me every man who served in the Great War and every man lost in it. The Battle of Verdun came to an end on December 18th, 1916. It was three days shy of hitting the 10-month mark, and three days after the latest French counterattacks that pushed the tattered German 5th Army back from Forts Douaumont and Vaux. Another harsh Meuse winter was beginning, so the poor, bloody infantry of both sides hunkered down in their shell holes to wait it all out. It was over. The mill on the Meuse had ground to a halt. Since the 21st of February, the salient north of Verdun had been pushed in by up to six miles by the German 5th Army, This happened during the first five months of the battle. Most histories will tell you that the defending French 2nd Army then took back all that ground, leaving the lines where they were back in February. I made the same error myself way back in Episode 1. As we can see from Episode 13, in the critical sector on the right bank, not all of the lost ground was retaken. When the latest eerie silence settled on the Verdun sector, the frontline trace put the French where they'd been during the desperate days at the end of February. On the left bank, the Germans retained possession of Hill 304 and Les Mortes Hommes, which gave them jaundiced eyes over the battlefield. Fighting at Verdun was done for now especially to the French Poilus on the ground, no one could say for sure if or when a new attack might open up on them. And when spring or a stretch of decent weather came, man, the Germans might try again. They'd already stuck through some horrific losses, and still, they'd continue the attack. So why wouldn't they try again in 1917? The war, quite obviously, wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. The army of France, thanks largely to General Philippe Betin's Noria system of constant troop rotations, had run two thirds of its total manpower through the battle. 85 infantry divisions out of a total of 125 had served a tour at Verdun at least once. Some had served two or three tours and the ever decimated 37th African division had done five tours through hell. In a rough calculation, this means that almost 1,300,000 Frenchmen were in the thick of it at Verdun at least once during the battle. The German army, in contrast, had fed a total of 48 of its divisions through the Meuse meat grinder equaling a quarter of all of its forces on the Western Front. An event like the Battle of Verdun does not happen, naturally enough, without ripple effects. 1.3 million Frenchmen and several hundred thousand Germans had been funneled through a bloody and man-made crucible the likes which had hitherto never been seen. The incomprehensible horror of that battle was forever branded into the souls of these men. On the French side, a common and simple statement overheard between veterans was, Je fais Verdun. I did Verdun. Perhaps it's a nuance of the French language, but that was how Poilus would let each other know they'd been there. They hadn't been at the battle. They'd done it. Indeed, they had held the line against the hated Bosch as the world watched throughout 1916. They'd known they were fighting to save France. Verdun was now a sacred city and a symbol to the world of the Gallic nation and its resistance to its hated enemy. But the destructive force unleashed on each army by the other had left them blasted and stunned, much like the battlefield itself. German survivors experienced similar feelings, but there were less living veterans of the battle. And ultimately with the defeat in 1918, there was less impact nationwide felt from Verdun. Verdun stood as proof of the ability of German arms. But over time, the perception shifted to that of the battle as a sad waste. Even the official German history of the war called the battle, the tragedy of Verdun. Later in the 1930s, according to William Hermann in his memoir, The Holocaust from a survivor of Verdun. Once the NSDAP took power, talk of Verdun in Germany was akin to defeatism and could get you in serious trouble. The Battle of Verdun would have far-reaching consequences for France and Germany, but especially for France. To sum up real quick, the lieutenants and captains of Verdun would be the field marshals and generals of the next World War. France would see the forts now and eventually say, More of that, please. And the Germans would say, we'll just go around the forts with uh, those tank thingies next time. But with the memory of Verdun burned into the minds of not just the veterans of the battle, but their families, the families of the dead, politicians, and the nation as a whole, it took something out of them. When the French realized the struggle they were facing at Verdun, they threw in everything they had to hold that line against their enemy. And they kept throwing in everything they had, including thousands upon thousands of men. French defense at Verdun and the enormous sacrifice it entailed could only be asked once of a people. As students of the First World War already know, The strain put on the French army in 1916 pushed it to the point of exhaustion. When the Chemin des Dames came the next spring with its miserable results, the soldiers burst into mutiny. Verdun had far-reaching consequences because when faced with a similar life or death crisis a generation later in 1940, French couldn't do it or wouldn't. I'm probably blundering into a contentious minefield with magnetic shoes with this whole World War II topic. So let me just stop there right now. Between February and December, the French army took a staggering 377,000 casualties at Verdun. Initially, just under a third of this total was classified as missing Lose, taken prisoner, or literally lost from their units and not yet formally reported back, or left dead on the battlefield. Over time, it became very clear what missing meant. For the most part, thousands of men had literally been blown to pieces with no recoverable remains. They were gone. Of the 377,000 casualty count for France, the number of killed at Verdun would eventually be revised upwards to around 165,000 men. In the same time frame, German casualties are given as 337,000. If we take the same math as applied to the French, where killed in action and missing in action made up. Roughly 45% of total casualties. The Germans had over 148,000 of their own men die on the tortured ground north of Verdun. 10 months. 714,000 casualties with over 300,000 men killed or missing on a battlefield just 100 25 miles square for territorial gains the depth of which an average man could walk in a few hours. But the point of Verdun wasn't to gain territory, correct? It was to create such devastating losses to France that its army would be bled out to exhaustion. So from this view Had the Germans met their objective as set by von Falkenhayn? The answer here is not yes. It is yes, but French losses were 40,000 men more than that of the Germans. This is unusual in that defenders typically take much less casualties than the attacker in battle. For almost textbooks example of this math, see the U.S. Civil War. But in the context of Verdun, where the battle took on a monstrous life of its own and sucked in ever more men as every piece of ground became ever more furiously contested, the higher French casualties are not unusual. The French army's evolved policy of defend to excess with its brutal call for immediate counterattacks made France's defensive posture as offensive as that of the attacking Germans. Yes, the German army met General von Falkenhayn's murky objective to bleed the French white. And in my research, I have also come across claims that Von Falkenhayn's memo with that infamous phrase may be a hoax, perpetrated by the disgraced general himself. So yeah, that's that's interesting. With the French Second Army desperately holding the line at Verdun, they had far less men who could have attacked on the Somme during the summer of 1916. General Joseph Joffre had originally wanted 40 divisions for his grand attack. In the end, he could only secure 14 for the effort. The mill on the Meuse had shredded everything else. But the French had held, even if by the end of 1916, their army was indeed at the point of exhaustion. The worn-out state of French forces was such that a shift had taken place during the summer on the Somme. And this shift would become permanent and more pronounced as time went on. When the British army took on the greater role in the Somme offensive in July, they also took over as the main allied effort on the Western front. The Tommies would now need to make something happen on the Western front. If any change was to come. Yes, the Germans had met their objective. But in wearing out the French, they had worn themselves out as well. They lost almost as many men at Verdun, and that had not been part of the plan. On top of that, the German army hemorrhaged another 600,000 men at the Somme. Relative to the French... British and Belgians, the German army retained the upper hand in but they too were dangerously exhausted as well. The German fifth army could not properly exploit its gains made at Verdun. Instead, it found itself worn out, getting to where it got, and then smashed back on the right bank to just a couple miles from where it had kicked off. The Battle of Verdun made political casualties as well. It had taken down von Falkenhayn and von Knobelsdorf on the German side during the summer. Crown Prince Willem himself transferred command of 5th Army to General von Lokhoff, and he moved up to take command of Army Group Crown Prince. I'm not sure if this was a demotion disguised as a promotion, as little Willie being the Kaiser's son and all, he probably really couldn't be fired. On the French side, several upper echelon officers had been sacked or relieved of command during the battle, justly or unjustly. In the parlance of the First World War French army, these men were limogés, term created due to fired officers being assigned to an army post in Limoges, France, a kind of military Siberia. Mongin himself had been sacked after his disastrous attack on Fort Douaumont in May back in episode 6, although he hadn't been shipped off to permanent purgatory. The man who had created the practice of Limoges Papa Joffre now found himself a target of a concerted push to limogé him out of his own job. The Battle of the Somme was considered a costly failure at worst. At best, an uninspired Joffre body slam style of attack seen far, far too many times since 1914. Compared to the slog on the Somme, the October counter-attacks at Verdun looked like brilliant lightning strikes. Which, you know, they kind of were, you know, as compared. French government, now more open and honest about its opinions of Joffre, had enough. In December, as the Battle of Verdun drew to a close, the mill on the Meuse reached out and grabbed Joffre. He wasn't fired, but promoted upwards to become a Marshal of France. The effect was the same. Joffre was now in a rather useless and ceremonial position. And more importantly, he was out of the driver's seat. He would sit in obscurity until the end of the war when he'd be called out of his little office at the war college to take part in the Allied victory parades. General Pétain, now known as the savior of Verdun to France and the world, was passed over for Joffre's old job. With his pointedly hostile attitude towards French politicians, you really can't be too surprised. And comparing Pétain's nastitude to that of the charming and well-spoken General Robert Nivelle, the guy currently taking and getting the credit for the successful French counterattacks, Well, how could the gruff and glaring former man win? Nivelle, riding high on his successes, was given command of the French army in December, 1916. With his new creeping barrage tactics Nivelle now told all who would hear, we have the formula. Nivelle was convinced he'd break through where Joffre had failed. He'd win the war himself. After two brutal and heartbreakingly terrible years of war, France as a whole was ready to fall for a guy like Nivelle. His supreme self-confidence was infectious. Shortly thereafter, Nivelle himself would be telling his troops three words. Like they were a bad Calvin Klein commercial for obsession perfume. Courage. Confidence. Nivelle. I mean, the guy said it himself. The new commander shot up in popularity like a meteor. He then exploded like a supernova when his Chemin des Dames offensive collapsed disastrously in spring 1917. The exhausted Poilus, having lost some 180,000 more of their own for no breakthrough, mutinied. With the French army now paralyzed, and a grand mal seizure of mutiny after three years of the often reckless waste of its soldiers, General Robert Nivelle found himself not just fired, but physically removed from army headquarters. He was banished to a post in North Africa. Robert Nivelle passed on to the next life in 1925 without leaving a word or otherwise recorded thought about the war, his leadership, the mutinies, nothing. After Nivelle, the French government called in the next big name they felt they could trust, even though he was a cold bastard to parliamentary deputies. Another Verdunois. Pétain was brought in to heal the now broken army the savior of Verdun now began to earn his next title, Les Médecins de l'Armée, as he set to work dealing with the mutinies in what he would later say was his most stressful time in the service. And lest we forget, Les Mangeurs des Hommes, General Charles Mangin, went on to go down again with his benefactor, Nivelle, after the Chemin des Dames. But unlike the latter, Mongen was brought back and by a war's end, he commanded the French Sixth Army and went on to oversee the occupation of the German Rhineland. Not bad, Charlie. While the leadership of the battle rotated out and away the front line at the Verdun salient settled into its new normal as a now very violent sector of the Western Front. Whereas the Somme battlefield became lost in the rear areas of the British sector after 1916, the Verdun salient remained on the front line until the very end of the war. Gone were the days of cushy and quiet tours of duty, where both French and German abided by a mutually understood live and let live policy. Fighting broke out periodically at Verdun in 1917 and 1918, sometimes unplanned and sometimes by design. In August of 1917, after spending weeks rehabilitating the mutinous French army General Philippe Bétain ordered a small scale operation with clear and limited objectives so he could get his poilus back on track and focused on the enemy. The location of the attack? Verdun, of course. Pétain's objectives? Since the end of June, 1917, the Germans had been harassing French positions near Hill 304 and Les Mortes Hommes. This quickly turned into sharp and nasty fighting that went on for weeks, with the Germans nudging their lines past the two hills. Pétain, still very much aware of the importance of Hill 304 and Les Mortes Hommes, set them as the focus of the attack. Four infantry corps would launch a quick attack at the salient, with two corps attacking the Bosch on the left bank, and two, pushing against the enemy lines on the right bank. On August 11th, French guns opened up. Over the next nine days, three million shells pounded German positions out of existence. Under Pétain, there would be no more attacks without proper softening up. He needed his men to know that, and he showed them his style of fighting again by churning the earth in bones at Verdun. The French infantry attacked on August 20th. Within a few hours, Les mortes Hommes was recaptured. Four days later, Hill 304 was retaken and French lines on the right bank ground forward another kilometer as well. Fighting continued back and forth through September, but the August attacks snatched the two bloodily contested hills from the Germans for the loss of some 10,000 Frenchmen. Baitan called off any further attacks once his goals were met. There would be no more slugfests. The German offensives in the spring and summer of 1918 hit the Western Front between Ypres. And the Somme. Verdun remained a static part of the line until September of that year, when the doughboys of General Blackjack Pershing's First U.S. Army took over the left bank of the salient for its Meuse Argonne offensive. To the east of Verdun, the Americans had just eliminated the Somme-Yell salient and the Meuse-Argonne was now to be part of the steady push against the collapsing German army. As the Germans gave way to the sometimes chaotic American onslaught, the western half of the Verdun line began to creep away from the area of the 1916 battlefield. Doughboys now held half the right bank line as well. And in the final days of the war, men of the US 26th Infantry Division, known as the Yankee Division, cleared the German 5th Army out of Lieutenant Colonel Drian's old positions in the Bois Car. So interesting little connection between my hometown and Verdun here. If my accent hasn't come through, in previous episodes already. Well, I am from the Boston, Massachusetts area. No, I have never parked a car in Harvard Yard. It's wicked hard to find parking in Boston anyway. The Yankee division was made of regiments of Massachusetts men, thus the Yankee nickname And also, remember from episode 7, Norman Prince, one of the founders of the Lafayette Escadrille? Prince was from the Pride's Crossing area of Beverly, Massachusetts, which is just 20-some minutes down the line from where I live. Just an interesting aside. A few days After the retaking of the Bois des Car, the Great War came to a ceasefire at 11 a.m. on November 11, 1918. On the evening of the 11th, a group of poilus, frontschweine, and doughboys gathered at the Domloop battery position on the right bank. There, they lit a huge bonfire to celebrate the end of the fighting, the war itself was now finally over. During the 1916 battle, 40 million artillery shells had been fired into the Verdun battlefield. By December of that year, Hill 304 really should have been called Hill 300. Constant shelling took four meters of soil off the top of the hill. It is said Les Morts Hommes lost 10 meters in height from the violence visited on its summit and slopes. In that murdered strip of nature, where the battle had raged, many recognizable features had been blasted away. During the height of the battle in the summer, Vegetation either could not grow on the ground, it was constantly blown up by shells, or it would not grow. The ground was saturated with explosive and chemical residues that suffocated any new growth. During the battle, nine villages were erased from the world. Beaumont and Verdunois, Besanvaux, Cummiers les Mortom. Douaumont, Fleury Devant Duomont, Haumont Pressamogneux, Louvement Côte de Poivre, Orne, Vaud Devant d'Amelou. After the war, the villages were never rebuilt. The French government decreed that these villages had died for France, and as such, their sites would be left as reminders of the horror of the Battle of Verdun. On a more practical level, the villages fell inside the Zone Rouge, the wide swath of devastated and explosive-filled land in Northern France deemed too unsafe to be repopulated in the years after World War I. The Zone Rouge has shrunk in the decades since the war but it remains an effect on much of the Verdun battlefield today. Teams of demineurs are the only folks who go in there. And that's only when they have to remove some rusted shell that has resurfaced and could potentially blow up in their faces. Due to the zone rouge, the battlefield north of Verdun was purposely reforested in the 1920s, so a visit today does not give an accurate representation of what the land looked like before or during the battle, and certainly not during the battle, but just about a hundred years later and the ground is still heavily pocked with shell craters. Just look under the trees. I visited Verdun in 2000 and walked through what was Fleury. Of the nine villages that disappeared, the largest was Fleury, the scene of savage fighting during June, 1916. It apparently had upwards of 500 residents just before the war. Today, no trace of the village remains other than beds of white fist-sized chunks of masonry that mark where the buildings once stood. The whole place has a haunted feeling. At the cemetery before the sinister ossuary, I remember noting that despite it being a warm June afternoon, there were no birds in the sky at Verdun even Verdun itself has a quiet kind of somber feel to it after what happened there how can it not so as of this writing next year will be the 100th anniversary of the battle and my plan is to be at the Bois de Car on February 21st, 2016. If anyone out there plans on doing the same, hit me up through Facebook or email. I will see you there. And with that, this podcast is now complete. This will be the last episode. But please... Continue to spread the word about it. As always, any questions, comments, or concerns can be sent to me through Facebook, battle of Verdun or by emailing me directly at Verdun at gmail.com. This has been a really enjoyable project. It is awesome when your research and hard work. Did you know that these things take a lot more effort than I had any idea they would? That hard work, it pays off with compliments from listeners around the globe and email exchanges with folks who are as equally passionate about history as you are. So I'd really like to do the battle of the psalm next. When? I don't know, sometime during the summer. I'd say tentatively. Ideally, I would love to have the battle completed in time for the 100th anniversary next year of that battle. I'd like to do the saga of the Ypres salient as well with battles 1, 2, and 3. And I'd love to dive in to the many French offensives on the Western Front that do not get much coverage in the English-speaking world. But all of that will mean a new podcast series, new site, all that stuff. And eventually, the Verdun episodes will migrate over to this new series as well. I want to give just a couple of quick shout-outs that I very much need to do. One, to my man Gunnar, who has been the best French coach ever. And to my stepson, the bearded one, who was instrumental in helping this whole thing get off the ground. Thank you, guys. So, with all of that, uh, with the future plans, um, I think it's quite obvious I have a lot of reading to do. As this podcast very clearly demonstrated to me, and to paraphrase my favorite sub-story within Game of Thrones, you know nothing, silly amateur podcaster. Once the tracks on the new thing get moving, I'll put out an update on here, so please keep your subscriptions open. Thank you so much for listening and sticking with this retelling of the watershed battle of the First World War. All of you out there, rock. Talk to you again soon, and remember, stay tuned. Take care.